G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the Round 8 review and uh, a tiny bit of a Round 9 preview as well because we're about to head into this crazy period of 33 AFL games in 20 days. So as you'd imagine, a heat to get through in this episode. So I'm not going to muck around, I'm going to straight away Say a very good evening to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Finey? You call it, I'm well, right? You call it crazy, I call it great. It's fantastic. Ain't What's look, crazy great? Ain't you looking forward to it? I mean, the rest of life in Melbourne has ground to a halt. The rest of Australia, if you're listening from outside uh, Melbourne or Melbourne and the Mitchell, whatever that is, area, uh, your life might be going on almost back to normal. But for us here in Melbourne... It's ground to a halt. So football really plays a, a not a, not only professionally for us, Rowan, but for everybody who loves footy. It's playing a huge role in keeping us sort of happy and sane. Yes, no, I, I agree with that entirely. And happy to say too that I think uh, last few weeks we're starting to see some better games too. So um, fingers crossed that we see plenty of them over these next three or four weeks. Um, I'll tell you what we're going to see plenty of too, uh, Finey. And if you go to a certain establishment in Albert Park, you will receive the best of hamburgers. Burgers, schmurgers. That's what I say to the other burger vendors. Whether it's the large multinationals or even the small bespoke new modernistas with their eggplant burgers and their tofu buns, <laughs> give me an Andrews burger. Any time of the day, any day of the week, any month of the year, any year of creation. Because I tell you what, actually, I'm not a creationist, so just any year. Oh, you can't, actually, I'm a creationist when it comes to burgers. Create the perfect burger thus. Beautiful buns, perfect meat patty, fresh vegetables, Australian cheese. Put it all together with the experience you only get from 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrew's Hamburgers. And there is your classic Aussie burger. The rest can go source themselves. For me, there's only one place to get a burger because it's so bloody good. Andrew's Hamburger, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Well, I want a classic home renovation too. I know it's a little bit different to a burger, but I'm upping the ante. You are indeed, but why not get one with the lot like you would at Andrew's when you've got the appetite for it? Because I'm talking about some of the great modern features of building those floor heating. Oh, how beautiful this time of the year. And I know uh, your great Essendon captain, Dyson Heppel, I've been into his house even before he was there because I was there while it was being built. They've got these beautiful slate floors, but they're warmed because the heating actually coils underneath. Floating staircases, if you don't know what that means, contact West Point Properties, Nick Spartels, and you'll find out what a modern build can really provide. West Point Properties, Nick Spartels, in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, and you're going to get one with the lot, but even more than you could ever expect. 
Lovely plugs, great sponsors. You're a great audience, and we're going to give you a great show starting right now. On Footyology, wrap around. Round eight kicked off on Thursday evening with uh, the Gold Coast getting their moment in the spotlight. A big challenge for them up against the uh, Western Bulldogs. And, well, you wouldn't say they failed, even though they didn't take out the points. This was an exciting game, a really good finish and a scrap and a low-scoring scrap, but always enthralling. And uh, I think we saw enough again of the Suns, even in defeat, to convince us that they are a far more resilient bunch than we've come to believe over the last few years. Final scores, the Bulldogs home by 5.7 goals, 9, 51, defeating the Suns, 6, 10, 46. For the victors, all single goal kickers. For Gold Coast, three to Alex Sexton. He was a live wire up forward. Uh, Took Miller pretty good for the Suns. Jared Witt's good in the ruck too. For the Doggies, that uh, brigade of midfielders probably won them a day, although their defence was very good too, led by Caleb Daniel and Hayden Crozier. What a pickup he's been for them. But none other finey than East Melbourne's finest mullet, that man, Bailey Smith. What an outstanding season he is having and what an outstanding player he is turning into. And how long is that hair going to get by season's end? He'll be, uh, he'll be, you have to be careful he's not treading on it when he's running. Jack McRae picking up his usual stack of possessions. Bailey Williams, pretty good. And the skipper, Marcus Bontempelli, he's always good. Well, it was tight. This two goals each at quarter time, three each at half time, five each at three quarter time. In the end, the Bulldogs, only by virtue of an extra goal in the last quarter, sneaking home. I always felt they were going to hang on, but um, what do you make of this one? Uh- First of all, pleased that your take on the game was that it was a ripping game, even though the scores were low, because it was a ripper. The A couple of interesting things. I agree. I thought they were always going to win it, but look, when Rankin took that mark, he had that shot at goal. There was the opportunity to win the game, uh, certainly to level up matters. And for a player of his level of skill, that was probably a disappointing snapshot. There was no more scoring in the game, and I think the Bulldogs were the right winners couple of observations. I'll tell you what, that Tim English, he's like the girl with a curl. He's either good, and I mean very, very good, or he's pretty bad. And he got absolutely taught a lesson by Jared Witts. He couldn't get his, meaningfully, get his hands on the ball in the ruck. Now, I saw a couple of times on the weekend, we cannot undersell ruck work to advantage. It is such an important part of our game because we've got to remember we've got the 6-6-6. If you can get your midfield running from a centre clearance, that's your best chance of setting up a scoring opportunity. And I thought Jared Witts really taught Tim English a lesson. And one thing Tim English is going to have to learn as he develops in football, because he's got potential to be one of the best, if not the best ruckman in the game, is when things start badly, Tim, you've got to be able to turn it around. And that's now three times this season where he's been taught a lesson and has not been able to get a foothold in the game. It wasn't fatal for the Doggies because of that, you mentioned it, fantastic defence of theirs. Isn't Crazier a great pickup? Probably. Yes. Yeah, probably, as I said a couple of weeks ago, with Tim Membry, the great bargain pickups in the competition. They... They're not the same without him in defence. I'll say that. he—he. He, it's not just the glue that holds the defence together. 
He also provides a great foil for the man you also mentioned, Caleb Daniel, because Crozier is the sort of player that does attack the ball in the air, like an Eastern would. And if he can dish it off to Daniel, isn't Daniel the best in the comp at going inboards? It's one thing to come out of defence and hit the boundary, but Caleb Daniel can beautifully man somebody up and get the ball going down the corridor. And I think that's where the Doggies win this game. There was plenty to like from the Gold Coast. Their defence, you know what? They're not bad, that defence. That really, we're talking about youngsters and, and players who are not really frontline at the forefront of people's minds when they talk about the best defenders in the game. But I'll tell you what, the boys like Bose and Lacocious, who we think is precocious, but we know is good, they're doing their bit. And I've got to say this, if they had young Raoul in the team, um, how? I'll ask you this, Rowan. They're probably not going to... Oh, they may make the eight, they may not make the eight. I would say if Raoul was in that team, and I'm serious here, would they not be a genuine top four possibility. I think they would be. Well, they would. I mean, it's that sort of season. And I, I guess in some ways, although it's come a lot earlier for them, it's hard not to think back to 2014, last time they were a finals chance. And, of course, they lost Gary Ablett after round yeah, 14. Yeah, and that, right. uh, that killed their chances off and obviously lost Raoul a lot earlier. But, no, I tend to agree with you. But, look, whether they make it or not, Already you can say this has been a very positive season in the context of others have had. One area just quickly they probably need to tidy up is their efficiency. Six goals, ten. You mentioned Rankin's miss at a critical stage, but they've ended up uh, inside 50s, 47 to 37, and yet lose the game. And there's a few examples of that this weekend. So, And a few, well, a couple of examples in particular of sides that got there goal-kicking boots on and made the most of their opportunities and uh, look what happened. We'll come to them later. But good win for the Doggies and good signs even for the losing side. All right, that is Thursday night. Let's go to Friday night. Friday evening at Giants Stadium, the grand final rematch. Uh, Didn't necessarily come with a lot of hype attached to it. Uh, you wouldn't say that uh, the Giants got their revenge, but they did certainly reverse the um, result of that far more important game at the end of last year with, in the end, a 12-point win over the Tigers. Nine goals, eight, 62 GWS, defeating Richmond, a hideously inaccurate 6-14-50. The goal kickers, well, one man shone in this regard and not for the first time, his name was Toby Green. Five goals to young Toby. Uh, gee, he's playing some good footy at the moment. Dusty Martin, the only multiple goal kicker for the Tigers. Uh, I'm going to let you take up the cudgels here, Finey. You know, I I've, I've, think I've worked out the key to tipping GWS, and you might have noted it, Rowan, and the listeners to the podcast over the last few weeks. Because remember last week, I actually tipped GWS, and then I asked you during the running of the weekend whether I could change my tip because Toby Green was out. It's almost that simple. Seriously, that forward line is dangerous for Toby Green and it's almost impotent without him because Jeremy Cameron is just going, to be honest. Finn Layson, not as effective as last year. Still a nice foil, but not as effective. Perryman works further up the field. He was the early leader in the Coleman medal, wasn't he, after about three weeks? 
they just don't have a lot of goal-kicking options up there. But with Toby Green, he is such a good footballer. And then down the other end, Rowan, when Richmond just had to lift, and it was not going to be easy. They were down by something like four and a half goals in that third quarter. And to be honest, with Lynx not looking like getting a goal and Rewalt struggling, they were in big trouble. But boy, did Dusty Martin put the afterburners on. And they did draw within a goal of the GWS Giants. They just did not have enough support for Dusty. Or they didn't have enough Dusty Martins because they needed one up forward and one in the guts. And in the end, well, GWS, and I thought Josh Kelly played a really good game. They had some very good players doing their bit. Lockie Whitfield was fantastic off the halfback flank. So you've got your best players playing well, Row. You've got... On the opposition side, you've really got one play you've got to lock down on. And in the end, Dusty couldn't do it all on his own. As you said, bad kicking is bad football. And whilst Richmond, given who they had out, who they were playing, and uh, the fact that they had 20 scoring shots to 17, could turn around and say it was hardly a poor performance in this abbreviated season of 17 games, it's a game they could ill afford to lose. So well done to the Giants. And for Richmond, I think we've just hit critical level as to how many players can be out of that side when playing a better team. And I think we might have tipped over that amount when Caddy also couldn't play this weekend. So, yeah, it might be okay against Sydney and North Melbourne. But when you're playing the better teams, I think Richmond desperately need to get some players back. Well, speaking about efficiency, I think I'm going to talk about this in virtually every game. But, uh, you know, I think that's kept GWS hanging in there this season, even when they haven't been playing at their best. And Friday night was another good example of it. Only 32 inside 50s. The Tigers had 14 more, 32 to 46. And yet they've ended up conjuring a winning score with nine goals, eight, 17 scores for 32 inside 50s. That's over 50%. That is a pretty decent ratio yep and uh you know you've got a, a really imposing forward setup yeah sure the keys didn't fire this time but toby green um he's a pretty handy alternative and in fact he's really their principal goal kicker these days isn't he so um they've got that part of it ticking over beautifully their defense is never worse than solid i don't think and the midfield the key parts of that uh continue to get better and better Cornelio's form getting conspicuously better by the week. So, uh, yeah, look, they've been up and down this year, but we know how good their best can be. Uh, Richmond, I'm sticking with the Tigers. I still think uh, I think they'll recover from this. I think they'll hang in there, and I think when the business time comes around, they will be ticking over nicely again, as they have critical times in those two premiership years. So, uh, yeah, look, it's it's... Looming as an interesting time at the top end of a ladder, isn't it? Uh, we hadn't discounted GWS, but they're certainly looking very potent once again. Just one before we do put this game to bed, uh, Marley and Pickett, who certainly had a up up and down season, I thought he was great. You know, it's easy to have a look at some of the Collingwood, uh, some of the pardon me, Richmond players who are down in form and. Don't include Marley and Pickett this week because it's been a tough season for him, but he really lifted his rating. So well done to that player. All right, GWS turning the tables on the Tigers. There's Thursday, Friday night. Let's turn our attention to Saturday. All right, North Melbourne took on Carlton at Metricon Stadium early on Saturday afternoon. And... Uh, 
really entertaining game, this one. I quite enjoyed it. In the end, a seven-point victory to the Blues. Nine goals, 10-64, defeating the North Melbourne Kangaroos. Nine goals, three 57, seven more behinds. Uh, they would have been stiff to lose at the Blues, but uh, after they made uh, the most of a power pack first quarter and you thought, how far this is going to be another abject performance by North Melbourne, North really found something to their credit. They fought back hard and in the end certainly had their chances to win the game. Uh, for Carlton, the goal kickers, Cunningham 2, Kennedy 2, and Jack Nunes, two, for the Roos. Bailey Scott, three goals. Nick Larkey, a couple, uh, within a couple of minutes. Single goal kickers, the rest. Yeah, like I said, Fanny, uh, Carlton absolutely on fire early in this game. They had two goals on the board within five minutes. Uh, by the time Levi Casbolt dubbed one from outside 50, uh, it's 23 points. And they were just dominant in the clearances. 12 free to clearances close to quarter time. They put another one on the board early in the second quarter through Kennedy, and it was 30 points. Uh, but North really found something. Nick Larkey gave him the impetus. He bobbed up with a couple of uh, good goals. Uh, Jasper Pittard had tagged, uh, was playing as a defensive forward on Sam Doherty and did a really good job in that role. The other significant move was Jared Pollock, who had started off running with Cripps, didn't work. He went to a wing and Jed Anderson picked up Cripps. Both those moves worked. So credit to Reece Shaw. And Pollock became uh, probably North's most influential player. They whittled that deficit back to 12 points by the long break. The rain started pelting down in the second half. The game became a slog. Carlton uh, edged ahead again, but Bailey Scott this time bobbed up with a couple of goals. Carlton five points in front. The critical moment of this game and, uh, gee, it was an undisciplined act. They did give away a couple of uh, silly 50-minute penalties, but the silliest thing they did all day, Finey, uh, it was uh, Jared Pollock took a great mark just on the three-quarter time siren, a very gettable shot for goal. And as he was lining up to kick, Jasper Pittard came in and bowled over Mark Murphy. Possession was reversed. They missed the chance to get in front. And then in a rain-soaked last quarter, it was one goal each. Uh, North kicking the last one, but unable to bridge that gap to turn defeat into a victory. So both sides emerged with something out of this game. But uh, let's be honest, Carlton really deserved it on the weight of numbers. I uh, thought their on-ballers were terrific. Matt Kennedy, Mark Murphy particularly. Setterfield, Jack Martin had a good game. Sam Walsh, Pitnett in the ruck, not bad. Pollock and Anderson, like I said, for the ruse. Bailey Scott bobbed up. He's more important. Impressive, most impressive performance for a fair bit. And uh, Josh Walker in defence, always solid. Bottom line, though, six losses in a row for the Roos and the Blues. Now at 4-4, uh, is it, I think? Or, yeah, 4-4. And uh, a finals berth very much in the offing for them if they can keep it up. Pretty impressive performance, Finey. They're going good, Carlton. As I, as I sort of suggested in the preview, unfortunately they lose... Harry Mackay, is that a serious injury? Is he going to be out for a bit? He's, uh, he's, he's key to their claims against a better team, I would have thought. Yeah, I, I'm not now. I'm not 100% yeah, on that. But but it is an injury concern. Um, I'll tell you one thing Pittard has been throughout his con career consistently, and that is an idiot. He can play football, no question. But 
he has always had this ability to let his team down with something kooky. Whether it was Port Adelaide, whether it was Pittard Mc, McMillan or whatever his name was, he can change clubs, he can change surnames. But if I was playing on Pittard and uh, his team was having a shot of goal at three-quarter time, I'd do exactly what Murphy did. I'd keep, I'd keep in his ear because very disappointing what he did, uh, but he's capable of it. And I think Renshaw would be absolutely fuming privately that a guy that... You know, if the one guy was going to let you down, he was the one. That should be the one that doesn't let you down. So, disappointing from that respect. Good to see Larky back and playing well. And Ben Brown remains an absolute worry, doesn't he, for North Melbourne? Yeah, I thought he was a little bit better this week. And I, he, he looked a bit brighter for the presence of Larky. Look, perhaps that could turn things around for him. But he's in a hole and he knows it. Yep. Um, I just I thought he showed a few more signs this week than he had the previous week. But uh, more power to the Blues. They are going very well indeed. All right, first game of Saturday done. Let's talk about the second. Sydney taking on Hawthorne at the SCG uh, mid-Saturday afternoon, a game which a few years ago would have uh, caused much anticipation and hype. Not so at the moment. Both of them struggling. Sydney, of course, been injury-plagued all year, really had to do it the hard way, missing Buddy Franklin and more recently key midfielders. And the Hawks, well, uh, they had a great win over Richmond. Since then, they've looked uh, pretty shocking, to be honest, Uh, certainly impotent up forward. Um, And it was the Swans who prevailed, a deserved win for them in the end, finding 9-6-60, seven-point victors over the Hawks, 7-11-53. The man of the match for them, without question, Tom Papley. He is a star. Four goals to Papley in a game where not one other player on the ground could manage multiple goals. Uh, Only two points of difference at halftime. The Hawks leading. Sydney got their noses in front with three goals to one in the third term. And then in a real slog of a final quarter, one goal each. But the Swans hanging on. What would you make of this one? Well, first of all, Hawthorne are big maxi. Let me tell you, you know, you know what that means. Big maxi. Uh, gone. Oh, gone. Yeah, yeah. They are big maxi gone. Gee, they were. First of all, you know, they were two goals up in a very low-scoring game just before half time. Tom Papley kicks one off the ground. Now, you know he's a, he, he's a um, Woody Woodpecker type, isn't he? he he's a troublemaker. He's always going to get a goal and get in somebody's face. But seriously, Tom Mitchell, he should know better. Again, like I said about Pittard, but not that Tom Mitchell's a serial stupid stupid player, but Tom Papley is he's a serial aggravator and an agitator. So to push him over in front of the umpire, look, one of the commentators made a good point because as soon as Mitchell pushed Papley over, Mitchell received exactly the same treatment. So it's a fair question to ask. If Papley gets a second shot of goal... Why doesn't Tom Mitchell get the decision reversed in his favour? Good for one, not good for the other. But you know how these things work, Rowan, don't you? It's sort of, there was barely a free a free in it. An umpire's not going to do it twice. He sort of made his statement, hasn't he? You're very rarely going to get another shot of goal, then the reversal over a couple of guys getting tipped over by being pushed in the chest. Anyhow, it was irresponsible play. Two goals in a game where there wasn't a lot of scoring to be done. It ignited Papley. And then in the second half, it's funny, you know that goal that 
that great goal where he took the play on and he ran, got a couple of bounces and kicked the goal. That well, came the to one start- where he where he slammed the ball into the ground on yeah. the bounce. Yeah, yeah, correct. Well, you know why he did that because. About five minutes earlier, he tried to do exactly the same thing, but he didn't bounce it hard enough, and he lost the handle on the ball. Now, that is great football. That really shows, uh, you know, not only ability, but learning on the go. And I love when I see that in football. The conditions, we're so used to seeing games played under the roof and in pristine conditions that these, without having um, Marvel Stadium, we're getting a lot more outdoor football, aren't we? We're getting a lot more of the conditions. And... Mm. Great play by Papley to learn from his mistake a few minutes earlier and get the goal. Look, for Sydney, good to have Sam Reid back. Just a good big target up forward. Wasn't brilliant, but he did hit the scoreboard, and it's certainly somebody to kick the ball to. Blakey, a bit better. He's been struggling, but he showed a little bit. As far as Hawthorne's concerned, that forward line, look, we know that, obviously, Big Patton got injured. That was disappointing. O'Brien is quite a, a serious loss as well. But there's not a lot up there, really. You know, when you think well, of... you've got you to start asking about Jack Gunston, I reckon. Yeah, because well, that's, what, just... that's what I'm thinking. If well, he's the number right. one forward, Rowan, yeah. he gets a better I, I... backman. He's not, he's, 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 I think he's exposed with the lack of a big forward alongside. Yeah, well, I also think he's one of a band of senior players whose performances now have just tapered off gradually and gradually to the point where they're no longer able to sustain the rest of the team. And so the inexperience and perhaps even lack of ability of the younger band of players in that side is now being ruthlessly exposed because Burgoyne, Bruce, Shields, Gunston, etc., are no longer propping them up with consistent week-in, week-out performances. And one of those etc. is James Sicily. Now, he's a mighty good footballer. The coach did the right thing, Clarko. He wasn't going brilliantly up back, but that's okay. It was a wet day. He swung him forward. This game was there for the taking for Sicily, really. They had enough ball in their inside 50 in that last quarter, with Sicily being the target but he could not wrap his hands around any of them. And I know the conditions were tough, but I think that's what a good player does, doesn't he? He wins you the odd game of football. Sydney are pretty much a bottom three team. Hawthorne couldn't beat them. I think Hawthorne, uh, well, we know, look, they're not going to make the finals, I don't think. But worse than that, I reckon they're being exposed, apart from Adelaide, who's probably even compar- comparable to North as one of the lesser teams in this comp. Yeah, and I've got to admit, I I thought they would be pushing for the eight. They've been very disappointing indeed. That's now four losses on end. Uh, I looked it up after the game. The last time they lost five in a row was all the way back in 2010. So it's pretty unfamiliar territory for the Hawks, but certainly uh, bracing themselves for what could be a fairly abject end of a season now if uh, bigger stakes aren't any longer in play. All right, that is the game at the SCG. Uh, let's head over to Adelaide. Well, I've got to let you take the lead on this one, Finey, because your Saints triumphed over Port Adelaide, inflicting the Power's only second defeat of this season. 29 points in the finish, which I've got to admit you didn't see coming at three-quarter time. And what a scoreline. 12 goals, 1-73 defeating the power 
44. Two goals for Rowan Marshall, two to Butler, two to Membry, and two to Paddy Ryder. And for Port, all six goal kickers, singles. Um, tight, neck and neck most of the evening, finally. Uh, in fact, Port, I thought, had much the better in terms of general play of a third quarter. And uh, I thought they were probably going to prevail in the final term. But it was just a tide that last quarter. Five goals straight to the Saints to two behinds. Absolutely had a mortgage on the ball out of that centre square. And uh, in the end, did it in some style. And got to say, with one of the most amazing goals of the season, uh, Tom Jonas managing to tap the ball onto the foot or boot of Tim Membry. And uh, very prudent goal review decision by the field umpire. But they were great, your Saints. Uh, I'll leave it to you to wrap them up for a bit. So that first quarter, uh, St Kilda got the first goal. And then the ball went forward again for the Saints. It was near the boundary, picked up by Dan Butler, who's having a great season. And he tried an end-over-end ball that, with a bit of shape on it, a la Dacos, for a goal. And except that the conditions were a bit greasy, it was beautifully struck, but because the ball didn't grip on the turf, it slid into the behind post. That's the only points in Kilda kicked. I mean, that, that so easily could have been a goal off the boot. I've never seen anything like it. Good kicking is good football, and this was amazing. 12 goals won. Went a long way to winning the game for the Saints, didn't it? I think till three-quarter time, Port Adelaide were just... Even though St Kilda were a point up, I, I just felt Port Adelaide were just the better team. That St Kilda were having to keep up with Port. No question to me who was best on ground. Who do you reckon was best on ground, Roker? Uh, I thought Hunter Clark by mile. Yeah, I actually, I look, he was great. I gave you reckon Port Marshall? Adelaide. No, no, no. I reckon that Darcy Byrne Jones. Oh yes, yeah. no, he was easily Port's best. He didn't. Every time he went for the ball, he was superb. Look, yeah. look, that, that kid, we know he's highly rated because, I mean, he hasn't missed a game since he started, has he? But I've, in terms of in a high-pressure game, to be so sure-handed, I, I dip my lid to him. And I really think for the four quarters, he actually was best on ground. I picked St Kilda, and I picked him for a reason. Not easy coming back five days, all that travel. But they won the game against Adelaide, Four five days earlier for one reason, because of the dominance out of the middle created predominantly by Ryder with the assistance of Marshall. And that is exactly the same reason why they beat Port Adelaide. Laddams tried, but he was no match. Rowan, you've seen more of Paddy Ryder than I have because he played most of his career for the Dons. I've been following St Kilda, man and boy, for 48, 49 years. Hand to heart, he is the best tap ruckman I've ever seen in the red, white and black. I know it's a short sample period, but boy, when he gets his paw on that ball, there was a goal St Kilda got. It was a vital goal in that third quarter because, as you say, Port was on top. But he managed to tap the ball to Jay Gresham. That was the one I think Gresham slammed into Rowan Marshall and Marshall kicked the goal. Do you remember that? That piece yeah. of ruck work from the boundary was exquisite and it really yeah. was the difference between the two teams. So I think it was a high-quality game. I, I really believe with Lysette, Port are a better team. They're a very good team. There were just some highlights for me. That goal by memory was extraordinary. There was something else. It, when we think of mark of the year, you think of the high-flying mark of the guy going backwards, don't you? And by the way, mm. on that score, didn't young George Artis take a great mark going back with the flight of the ball? 
There was a mark in the last quarter. St Kilda had just kicked their first goal of the quarter and impetus was going their way. As it happened, they were going to win the game. But they came out of the centre and slammed a ball forward that I think your old mate, our old mate Dwayne Russell would call the chaos ball because it didn't come off the boot very well. Tom Clory took a mark. Like the ball was, wasn't flying properly. He took it down around his ankles. One grab, it was superb. And to me, that stood that that was symptomatic of a really good game of high pressure football. I think both teams should be applauded. Unfortunately for the Saints, the bad news was no sooner were they off the ground than word came through that Hanbury's season's over. With an injury to Seb Ross, that could be very telling. But for the moment, St Kilda are playing probably better than any Victorian team and really have handled that incredible double game in Adelaide. When you think they'd never won at the ground, to win there twice in five days is amazing. So well done to my Saints. Yep, and uh, first time they've beaten either team uh, for, what, nine years, 2011. So, um, yeah, no, they looked really good. Uh, Absolute uh, full credit to them. And Port continuing what has been a bit of a trend this season. Every time a team starts to look a bit dominant, they get a very rude awakening. And uh, I wonder if that's going to happen with a certain team over in the West who we'll be talking about shortly because, boy, did they look good today. But... Um, we're talking about the Saints. It was a great win by them. 12 goals, one. One of the most amazing scorelines you'll ever read. A very emphatic win in the end. That is Saturday's football done and dusted. Let's talk about Sunday. Okay, well, I've got to say there wasn't an Essendon supporter in the nation, finally, not very, very jittery about this game against Adelaide at Adelaide Oval because uh, the Crows were a lot better against your Saints last week. Didn't lose by much at all. And uh, everyone thought, oh, here we go. They will take that effort over the top and get their first win. And for much of this game, that is exactly what I thought was going to happen, even though the Bombers were uh, dominant in terms of numbers, possession. Uh, Unfortunately, couldn't nail their chances. Then again, neither could the Crows. Anyone's game for most of the afternoon. Essendon, a goal up at three-quarter time. And in the end, prevailing by just three points after Adelaide kicked one goal six. Yes, one goal six from, I think, 16 inside 50s in the final quarter. The final scores, Essendon, 9-8-62, defeating Adelaide, 8-11-59. Goal kickers for the Bombers, McDonald, Tippen, Woody, two. Kyle Langford, who had uh, a few longest in sub four today, two. And two goals to second gamer Ned Carl or Kale, who I thought was uh, pretty impressive today. He is a pretty smart little player, and I think he's going to prove a bit of an asset. Laverde, uh, hamstring, uh, further weakening Essendon's already depleted forward stocks and uh, pretty dysfunctional at stages they were again this afternoon. Um, Adelaide, they certainly had enough possession to win this game in the end, finally. And uh, even in the very last attack of the game, you thought, oh, they're going to pinch it here. I think Will Snelling had to pop a little handball over the top to Devin Smith, missed the target, it got smothered. Adelaide on the rebound. Uh, Tex Walker, not a great handball to Brody Smith. Smith's kick went out of bounds and Hurley was able to find Redmond with the last kick of the game. So Essendon... 
just getting there, and I will talk about this later, five wins now to the Bombers, not one of them by more than 15 points. Absolute standout, or two standout players for me in the winning side, Jordan Ridley. Now, is there a more improved player in the AFL than Jordan Ridley? Well, someone threw up one. I asked the question on Twitter. Someone threw up Shy Bolton, and I think that could be fair enough. But Ridley has just been outstanding. Cool customer, reads a play beautifully, uses the ball beautifully, which puts him in elite company given some of the disposal today. He has been an absolute gun and a fair argument. He's leading their best and fairest. And Zach Merritt, I thought one of his best games for a long time, racked up the touches and used them very constructively. Andy McGrath gave as he always does. I thought Darcy Parrish had his moments. And Langford, um, pretty dangerous up forward. And he's having a reasonably solid period of form. For the Crows, uh, little Murphy ended up with three for them. Tex Walker, two for them. Paul Seedsman uh, really made a difference for the Crows with a fair bit of run and dash today and an important goal. Uh, Matt Crouch picked up the touches, as he does. Riley O'Brien battled hard in the ruck, but Bell Chambers probably broke even with him. Look, it could have gone either way this game, uh, and the Crows will be a bit heartbroken. That's two weeks now. They might have won either game and have emerged with nothing. That is their officially their longest losing streak in the club's entire history. Yeah, you know what? You lose probably your two arguably best players, Brad Crouch and Duday. And you have more shots at goal. And you haven't won a game for the season. Most people would say you're pretty unlucky. You know what? They had their chances. I thought Essendon... Don't sell short how many players Essendon have got out, seriously. No Heppel, no Shield in the middle. No Stringer, no Danaher forward. And let me tell you, Laverde is very important to their structure. So to lose him was as important as losing either of those Adelaide players. And a lot of inexperienced players. Little dancing homer there, Ned Kale. What do you make of these players like Kale and Dersma and their after, after goal Um I love it. I love it. <laughs> you know should what, be more of it. You know what I, I mean? Oh, people, I, people go, players are too vanilla nowadays. I'll tell you I, what, I a, a lot of them aren't. I can't believe the amount of attention it gets, to be honest. I mean, a guy does a bow and arrow, a guy does a dance. So what? You know, I mean, get on with the game. And the amount oh, of I attention agree. stuff like that gets in games now drives me insane, to be honest. Talk about his on-field ability. Don't talk about what he does after a goal. Oh, no. I, 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 look. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not main, saying you. I'm talking no, about no, the media generally. No, no, I agree. I agree. The main thing is how they play football. But if you're going to have an after-game celebration that becomes your sort of trademark, well, then it's going to garner comments because I think that's why you do it. And let me tell you, when your team is playing against somebody that does it, you want to throttle them. I mean, that, that Dersma, he, he sort of looks a little bit like um, Cupid, you know, with the curly blonde hair, and he does that arrow, and he can bloody play football, and that was a really important goal for Port. I wanted to throttle him, and I reckon Adelaide supporters would have felt the same with Ned Kale, but more power to him. You know what? Every time they're doing the dance or the arrow, they've kicked a goal, so it's it's fun. I agree. Now, here's a couple of things. First of all, you are, you, you're biased. Now, I've got to take you to task. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You are anti-Bell Chambers. He was definitely in the best Okay, sense. all right, sorry. So can you just clarify for the people who just heard you say you're biased and nothing else, that you're not talking about my ability to objectively assess Essendon's performance? Not at all. You've gone the other way. 
Right. Now, come on. Bill Chambers was great today. Yeah, he was, he was okay. Oh, hey, Rothy O'Brien's a very good ruckman. I thought, if, if you like Merritt's game, you've got to give some credit to Bill Chambers. I thought he rucked really well today. All right. Very instrumental in the win. Ridley, fantastic. Fantastic. I'm hard on Taylor Walker, but they should have won that game. You said not a good handball to Brady Smith. That's where they, that is, that's not good enough. You know, if he feeds that ball correctly, I think they win the game. It, it's harsh because actually Walker was the best big forward on the ground. But, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the man or vice versa. So a bit harsh on Taylor because I think he's certainly shown something in the last few weeks. But well done to Essendon. A lot of people are going to say lucky, etc., etc. I think with who they've got out, that was a bloody good win. All right. Well, a win's a win. They'll certainly take it. All right. Uh, two more games left on a Sunday. And this one was a biggie and eagerly anticipated. Let's head over to Perth. Well, uh, a lot expected of this game, given the uh, form line and prospects of these two teams. Not the result you would have expected. A smashing of Collingwood by a very, 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 Ominous-looking West Coast. 18 goals, three. 111. <laughs> that is fantastic. Wow. They could not miss. Absolutely stitched up the pies. Six goals, nine, 45. <laughs> A 66-point win. I'll tell you what's most amazing about this, that uh, early or midway through the first quarter, it was four goals to one, yep. Collingwood's way. West Coast kicked 16 of the next 17 goals of the game. It was just a phenomenal display of power football. I reckon this was, uh, look, I might be forgetting the odd game last year, but I reckon this is as good as I've seen them play since um, they won the premiership. They were just outstanding. And uh, talk about goals, seven goals to Josh Kennedy. Absolute fantastic performance from him. He couldn't miss. And finally, I mentioned a few weeks ago, I thought West Coast started to turn things around the day against Sydney, not just with the win, but the fact that Oscar Allen and Jake Waterman came into that side and really gave him a bit of extra life. Well, they did it again today. Three goals to Allen, two goals to Waterman. So there's 12 between them, 13 if you throw in Darling. That is a pretty imposing uh, quartet of marking goal-kicking forwards Throw in a Liam Ryan, throw in uh, Jamie Cripps. Wow, talk about potency. And, of course, their defence today, missing Jeremy McGovern. Uh, can't address this game without mentioning the key absentee for Collingwood. Don't get any bigger than Scott Pendlebury. Actually pulled out after um, uh, feeling his quad in the warm-up. Uh, replaced very, very close to game time. Massive out for them, along with, of course, Jordan Dugowie. Didn't inhibit their start. They looked terrific. And I thought, oh, here we go. Collingwood, the old backs to the wall, win on the road. Here we go again. But uh, after quarter time, West Coast just absolutely strangled the life out of them. Five goals to one in the second term, six goals to three behinds in the third quarter, and another five to one goal after that. Luke Shuey uh, back in town for the Eagles. Uh, not as prominent as usual, but... Another ominous thing finding, Tim Kelly, 30 disposals, easily his best game for the Eagles thus far. Andrew Gaff, 26. Yo, 22. They have got so many good players. Uh, I'll tell you what, 
if they're not going to win the flag, whoever does win it is going to have to play some unbelievable football because that is the most complete performance I've seen by any side this year by a long way. Isn't it funny how things, the football landscape, Rowan, can change in the matter of not even a game, three and a bit quarters. When Collingwood were four goals to one up, I sensed, and I reckon people watching it, if you, if you stopped time then, Collingwood were a real premiership proposition, and West Coast had certain issues that needed to be attended to. By the end of the game, West Coast are the premiership favourites. Collingwood are just hanging on in the eight, and you really fear, given their difficult fixture in coming up fourteen games, uh, four games in 14 days, with an injured Pendlebury, no how and, you know, no how and no, no who almost. And Dugowie. Obviously, the key there is Dugowie up forward. All of a sudden, things look a mile off for Collingwood, don't they? That's how quickly the landscape changed, but how devastating West Coast were. I think your summary of the game was perfect. I'll leave it at that, other than to say that I believe, and more on that during um, Life Hacks, that the grand final should definitely be in Perth. I'm with you, mate. If they don't win it, it'll take a very good performance by somebody to knock them off given I think that they should be playing their first ever grand final at home. Oh, they're going to be mighty hard to beat. Well well summed up. Yeah, well, it was always uh, their extended stint at home was always going to come into play as a big factor. However, even when we were talking about that early on, they weren't playing that good footy. The footy they are playing now, it's just got better by the week. And uh, wow, this was just high-octane stuff. Yep, a really, really, really impressive win. Okay, uh, that was Perth. One game left on the Sunday, and that was Brisbane taking on Melbourne at Metricon Stadium. Let's talk about that one. Well, another thriller to finish off, not the round, because there's a Monday night game, but finish off the weekend of footy, and it was Brisbane just hanging on over Melbourne. Seven goals, 11, 53, four-point victors, over the D's, 7-7-49. Hung on in this game for grim death, the Lions, in the last quarter. Managed to prevail without kicking a goal. Just five behinds for them in the last quarter. You didn't see this one coming, Finey. At three-quarter time, they had, in the conditions, which were difficult and greasy, a very, very handy 18-point lead. Melbourne having kicked only four goals. But credit to the D's, they dug in, they found something and you could really see them sensing they were a big chance the longer this last quarter went. Uh, Jack Viney got things within a couple of goals. Nathan Jones brought the margin back to within eight points with a bit over six minutes left on the clock. And then only a minute or so later, Jake Melksham bobbed up, bounced one through and it was back to two points with uh, still on five minutes to play. Uh, but credit to Brisbane for hanging on there at the finish. Uh, pretty relieved bunch of the Lions, I think, when the siren went. In the end, uh, goal kickers, three to Melksham and two to Fritch. And the only multiple for Brisbane, uh, the very talented Charlie Cameron. Uh, the usual suspects, probably for both sides, among the best today, uh, Lockie Neal, Brisbane's best again, Jared Lyons, Hugh McLuggage, uh, Zach Bailey, very good, and the experience of Dane Zorko playing an important role. 
And for Melbourne, Clayton Oliver, very good. Max Gorn, very good in the ruck. Jack Viney has really rediscovered some form. Melksham uh, gave a very salient reminder of how important he was in 2018 as that uh, in-between size forward rotating occasionally through the midfield. Petrarca, not quite to his previous games, but uh, still very serviceable. And Weaver, pretty good in defence. Just missed out the Ds. Could have been their third win in a row, but uh, ultimately um, paid for being a bit tardy early on. Brisbane having kicked three goals in the second quarter and then building on that lead a bit further in the third term. In uh, Look, it was a low-scoring game, but this one was quite an entertaining affair too. I don't know about Brisbane Finey. Look, they look very impressive. Uh, when they're on song, they play a very attractive brand of footy. I must say, I still have my doubts about whether that can stand up to the severest of pressure. And there's plenty more sides in Melbourne that will um, subject them to relentless physical pressure. Can they stand up in the face of that? I'm still to be entirely convinced. What do you think? Not with their current ruck set up. Look, no Stefan Martin today, but I think he's, you know, as I say, a light of other days. He's not as good as he was, and injury is preventing him from being uh, having much of an impact. So Oscar McInerney takes up the ruck with Archie Smith. Archie's not really top-class level. He gets beaten good and proper by Max Gorn. And McInerney's awkward, but still not really a first ruck. That's part of their problems. Uh, Charlie Cameron was getting frustrated by Neville Jetta, but he just got off the leash in that third quarter. You cannot, it's, you know what? It's like, it's like when you have a baby, you think, oh, right, oh, it's so exhausting looking after this thing. It's always pooping and crying and wanting food. You cannot turn off for a second with the baby. The minute you, you stop focusing your attention, they've got a fork in a PowerPoint or they've fallen off a couch or something. Same with Charlie Cameron. You cannot go to sleep for a minute with that bloke because he's he got a good nice running running bounce goal towards the end of the quarter. That was really the difference. Now, here's the stat. There's no reason for this. Forget the abbreviated season, short quarters, hubs. There's no reason. Coming into this game, this was the 71st game of the season, right? Nine times eight equals 72 minus the Melbourne Essendon game. Yep. 69 of the previous 70 games, the team leading at three-quarter time of one. Only yeah. St Kilda mucking it up against North. And we're talking about one point. St Kilda was up by one point against Port Adelaide. Every week this team's up by one or two points. They never lose. So how on earth could Melbourne issue a challenge in the rain with that statistical horror against them against a very good team who were three goals up? You know what? They could have won that game, Melbourne. So... So dramatically had Brisbane stopped, but somehow that stat seems to be more powerful than any force within a game that could be summoned by Melbourne or any other team. And Brisbane hang on to win. Not their best win of the season, but just keep chalking up the wins, get the double chance, and who knows. Yeah, well, that's that's the key part, just to finish off. They keep chalking up the wins. Now, just having a look at it, that is their uh, sixth win from seven games. Um, and the first win since round two, which has been by anything less than 20 points. So there you go. Um, they've done most of them reasonably comfortably. So maybe I'm a bit harsh on them. Uh, maybe it just takes you a while to be convinced by an emerging team. But uh, you can only keep winning, and that's what 
they are, they are doing. And the Ds, for all their improved form, still in a fair bit of trouble after their pretty slovenly start to the season. How about all that right. stat, Rowan? Can, is there Which any, one? that three-quarter time stat, 70 mm, out of 71, it, can you put it down to anything other than, well, sometimes fun, it's, it's, is there any reason for it other than just an amazing statistical anomaly? Well, I think the other stat you'd find, and I don't have it in front of me, but uh, last time I checked, the last quarter was by some margin the lowest scoring quarter of the season. Mm-hmm. So maybe sides that have the lead are just getting better at protecting it. We're seeing a lot of very, very defensive last quarters, hard to score, and thus a lead uh, becomes a lead maintained. Easier, to, easier to protect with the shorter quarter, I guess? Yeah, it is. It is. And I think that's the way the coaches are playing it too, okay. which isn't necessarily helping the quality of the football. All right, that is all the games thus far. Now, uh, just a little explainer here. We are going to turn to previews now because we not only have one game left in round eight, we have got one game in round nine, which will be played before we speak to you next. So get used to this. We're going to be all over the shop for a few weeks, but let's do those right now. On Footyology, previews with Punch. Okay, well, we have previewed this game, finally, uh, in the last episode, but uh, seeing it's still forthcoming and we've got another preview to do, let's just uh, recap Geelong Fremantle, they've got a very interesting history, those two teams. Uh, Plenty of argy-bargy between them over the years, of course. Probably the most famous game, Frio's memorable qualifying final win over the Cats at Skilled Stadium, no less, in 2013. Um, uh, Cats haven't got a great record in Perth. Uh, Then again, they have a much better record this season than do Frio, who still have some personnel Issues uh, On that basis, I am going for the Cats, regardless of how they performed last week against the Pies. So you don't agree with me? No, I'm going to go for Fremantle, mainly because you've convinced me and you've been right. For much of the year, they've been pretty honest, haven't they? Pretty tenacious. They have. Pretty capable. They have. Uh, you know, I keep saying if so-and-so comes back, I now found out Griffin Logue's out for most of the year, so I'll stop mentioning him. His injury turned out. I think it might be that syndemosis or something, but it's pretty, pretty season-ending, isn't it? Uh, See, there's no doubt syndesmosis, syndesmosis has become the osteitis pubis of 2020, hasn't it? It's just everywhere. What happened to the? Whatever happened to ankle injuries? Yeah. Is there anything? Have we had one in between? We've had osteitis pubis, syndesmosis. Is there anything? Uh, no, I can't think of one. Um, Tommy, I always Tommy go back Johns? to the late 80s. Stress fractures was yeah, pretty yeah, that was big. popular in the late 80s. Do you know what Tommy Johns is? Tommy Johns. Yeah, in, in baseball, there's an injury a pitcher gets. It's a rotator cuff injury or something. Oh, yeah. Some The first player to get it and have surgery was some Tommy John or something. I don't know. But it's called Tommy Johns, and it's it's our it's their syndemosis, syndesmosis or whatever. Okay. All right. Anyway, go on. Uh, so I'm tipping Fremantle in this. I like the fact that it's at home. I fear that, you know, Apple, it's a big loss. Don't worry about that. Very sad circumstances. And just really, it's it's the sort of, I hope that's not the end of his career, hey? Let's just say, it, it it's really um symptomatic of the tough year that everybody's having, especially Victorians. And that would be a terrible way to end one of the great careers of all time. So our thoughts go to him, his family, and also 
um, from the football community. Let's hope we see Gazza back. But I, I, he's played an important role. I don't think Geelong's got great depth. So I'm going to tip the Dockers. And I just want to add right. one thing. Yes. Now, the most famous game between these two teams is an infamous game that's very rarely talked about. I'm not 100% sure of the year. It's a very... It's, it's oh, actually, I know what you're going to say. It's a secretive yeah. game. It's a very yeah, secretive uh, game. Final game of yep. 1998 or yeah. nine, and Frio were accused of tanking. Okay, now I know a player who played in that game. Yeah. Who played for Fremantle. Yep. And he has told me that they tried to lose that game after half yep. time. Prob- problem being that they, they were so bad, they were always going to lose anyway. Yeah, but they were winning at half time. Um, yes, uh, no, Dwayne, Dwayne Russell wrote a big piece about that for the Sunday Age, yeah, I remember. It, it bears some watching that second half. There is some amazing football sort of not played in that second half. So forget Carlton Melbourne. There's your game if you want if you want evidence of tanking. Let's go to the Wednesday game, right? All right. Uh, 7-10 at Metricon Stadium. And it is the Bulldogs taking on Richmond. Uh, you can open the batting on this one. Okay. What a... What an important game for two teams. And I think we've sort of, just by our summaries and our reviews and previews, I think we've indicated our sense, and I think every football supporter senses this, it's just going to be bloody hard for a Victorian team to win it this year. Uh, they've, they're hubbed. They're up against a couple of very good interstate teams, at least, at least two very good ones, maybe four, but West Coast, Brisbane, and then on another level, Port and GWS are very good teams, hard to play against. And if there is going to be a winner, it may come from these two. Seriously, I, I know Saints are going well, but I reckon Bulldogs and Richmond have got the scope. And certainly Richmond, if they get their players back, but time's against them on this one. And I just think the Bulldogs are starting to show enough. If they slip back here, I'll, I'll bite my tongue. But I'm going to tip the doggies based on Richmond availability and based on the fact that the Bulldogs uh, showing something. Tim English, I hope he's more consistent. I don't see a big problem coming up against Soldo necessarily and Mublog Shaw. So I think he might be better served this week. I'll tip the doggies. All right. Uh, well, not for the first time recently. I am uh, differing. I am going for the Tigers, and uh, I'll be honest, no particular logic about it. I just have that much faith in them. We've seen them do it time and again. Yes, they couldn't get over the line uh, without the important personnel against GWS, but that was against GWS, who so are a pretty reasonable side, and it was on their home deck. This isn't on the Bulldogs' home deck. And I'm not saying the Bulldogs aren't a reasonable side. They clearly are. But uh, I just think it's, you know, look, a win is important for both. But the Doggies are on five wins. The Tigers are only on four and a draw. They need to win to keep their spot in the eight and to stay in touch. And uh, over the last, what, four, three and a half years now, whenever they have absolutely needed a win, they have been able to get it. I've got a lot of faith in the way they go about it. I've got a lot of faith in their depth and their replacement players to do a job. I think they're good enough to win. I am tipping the Tigers. Life Hacks. Building a better world. All right. You know, this segment, we change things up a bit. Um, I've got a a bit of both, Fanny. I've got some footy in there as well, but I want to kick off with uh, a pretty topical um, issue at the moment, face masks. 
And uh, anyone who lives in the Melbourne area knows it is compulsory now to wear a face mask. And uh, I thought once that was declared, it was going to be pretty inevitable that some nuffies out, oh, sorry, sorry, didn't mean to use that word, that some misguided people out there. Good work, would, Rowan. Well, well done. Yes. Yourself up, no, well. no, I remember we were corrected on that. Is is offensive. Um, some misguided people out there would attempt to subvert the law and make a big production of it in the process. So we saw the woman the other day at getting Bunnies. through the checkpoint. No, no, that was the first one, oh. uh, the woman at the checkpoint. Today we saw a woman making an absolute dick of herself at Bunnings. Uh, I saw another clip subsequent to that of a woman in a car park actually getting arrested after making a big production of it with a police officer who I thought handled himself very, very well. And uh, there was another one I think I saw on top of that. So it's getting pretty tiresome. I don't know why people are deciding this is the hill they want to die on because you're doing it to help out the state in the middle of a health crisis and a pandemic. So just shut up, put your mask on. It's not that great an inconvenience. And uh, full credit to the poor staff of any shop and the Bunnings people conducted themselves brilliantly, I thought. So credit to them and apologies to them for having to put up with so many absolute idiots who want to make a big deal about not wearing a mask. Okay, you're up. 100% correct. Whether or not you've done the science on the masks and all the intel that you've gathered off the internet tells you that you're not 100% sure it's perfect, it's just a little bit of an extra layer that can help, it can't hurt. It's like the old joke of the guy who gets hit by the car and the old Jewish grandmother runs out and give him, give him some chicken soup, give him some chicken soup. And the medico goes, chicken soup? Does that really help? And she turns around and goes, it can't hurt. You know, make the extra effort and just show that you're taking the thing seriously because it's bloody serious. And I'm going to be a little less serious about face masks. We all have to wear them. Now, I am wearing... Probably the one that's the most common one that you can pick up because you get them in packs of 10. The blue one with the white on the inside, it's shit. All right, I've got to get a better mask. I can't tell you. I've gone through that many masks where the, this, this thing that connects it to your ears keeps snapping. It's not well connected. They're not a great mask. And from tomorrow, we're, we're actually, we've ordered some at home. We're getting some better quality ones. Yeah, get a mask and try and get a good one. Because, as I say, the more common one, the blue and white paper ones, they might keep you from getting a $200 fine, but I'm pretty sure that there are better ones around. So there's my advice there. Well, could I venture an opinion there? Because yep. I've been wearing those masks and uh, I haven't had any problems at all. I would posit here that you are a compulsive fiddler. Correct. And Correct. I yes. am. Okay. Well, stop fiddling. Well, hang on. I need a fiddle-proof mask. Okay. Uh, but these I'm pretty sure these ones are surgical masks that they're wearing in operating theatres, so they can't be too ineffective, oh, I would have thought. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, yeah, I was just thinking about you being a surgeon and what uh, problems your compulsive fiddling might lead to in a surgical yeah, setting. No, I, don't, I think I would have failed the um, manual test on surgery. <laughs> Hey. All right. Uh, my second one is uh, back on a footy-flavoured theme. And uh, when was it? Uh, when the Blues 
got beaten by Robbie Gray last week, I tweeted something about, you got to feel sorry for the Blues. I was immediately beset upon by, it felt like the entire football supporting world other than Carlton supporters saying, what are you talking about? You never feel sorry for Carlton and you an Essendon supporter of all people. And uh, that was ventured to me quite a bit after that game. But I will uh, fess up here after watching the Carlton North game um, pretty closely yesterday, and I did do a video, a footyology match dispatch video match report on that, which is on my Twitter feed if you want to have a look. But I am really enjoying watching the Blues. I like their effort. I like the way they play. David Teague has instilled in them a real positivity and they try to attack, they try to score. Um, Levi Casbold is good to watch when he's on song. Jack Martin is great to watch. I like their kids. I like Sam Walsh. I like the way their veteran defenders keep getting the job done. There's a real spirit in that team. And I think above and beyond that, regardless of who it is, I enjoy watching a side that's been down in the doldrums start to get its act together and the energy that creates not only around the playing list, but around the club and around the supporting fraternity. And look, it has been, you know, I mean, it's one thing to, it certainly was an incredible turnaround, but Carlton have now been in the doldrums for the best part of two decades. It's a long, long time. And uh, I'm prepared to cut them a bit of slack. I'm really enjoying watching them play footy. And I think they're, re-emergence is a really good football story. And yes, I'm Eric Fresnan, but I'm quite enjoying it. So stream me up if you like, but I'm enjoying the Blues going okay. Let me take my finger <laughs> in my mouth. <laughs> okay. That is All sickening. Right. How could you say? Look, we have to bring previews, reviews and analysis in an impartial sense. But you've gone too far, mate. <laughs> okay. Seriously. Uh, you know, okay. you get me away from the microphone. They've been down for 25 years. 25 millennium wouldn't be enough for them, the hubris <laughs> they showed. You, you, I'll give you a St Kilda perspective on Carlton, if you like. Oh, no, yeah. Oh, oh, no, this I've will be my second before. life hack. I'm making uh, okay. this. This is my second go. Right. When St Kilda were facing the wall, um... You know, we had to come into a scheme of arrangement that famously saw people like Trevor Barker and Daryl Baldock taking however many cents in the dollar. So players had to take 12 cents in the dollar and creditors had to take like five cents in the dollar, okay? And you have a meeting of creditors and every creditor agreed to the scheme of arrangement, bar two, right? The two people, the two organisations or companies that did not agree to the scheme of arrangement was a company called A1 Filing Cabinets in Moorabbin and the Carlton Football Club. After the shit Carlton had sold St Kilda from Ian Muller to Aitken to Mark Buckley to Peter Fitzpatrick to Michael Jez that never even turned up and they wouldn't accept the scheme of arrangement. Now... I wasn't able to take much action against Carlton, but you know I did with what I did with the A1 filing cabinet company of Moorabbin? What? For the next three years, I would ring them up, and this is fair dinkum. So I ring up A1 filing. Yeah, so good day. Uh, Rick Sargent here. I've got a company in Croydon, uh, finance company. Uh, I'm after some uh, filing cabinets, uh, a, a range of filing cabinets, quite a large redo we're doing in the office. Would you be able to send somebody down? I'd give them the address. 
and make them come all the way out to Croydon to a fake address. I would order stuff from them. I'd go through their catalogue. Before the internet, I had to go there and get a catalogue. And I'd order filing cabinets off these pricks and never pick them up. So just as I hated A1 filing cabinets, I have the same sentiment for Carlton from those days. Now, I'll (laughs) review them. I'll preview them. I admire what they do on the field between... You know, the start and finish of our podcast, but I'll be damned if I go as far as you just went, Rowan. All right. Uh, well, that was back in, what, 1984? Yep, mid-80s. Do you want to find the cabinet? I've got a couple on order. I'd hope at least you wouldn't do the same thing today, but I suspect you probably would. You bet I would. Those okay. A1 filing cabinets. All right, I've got a rather frivolous one to finish off. Well, no, it's not frivolous. It's culinary, so you'll be Oh, pleased. wow. My, my rant's culinary. Uh, okay, all right. Well, my one is just an observation because uh, I've got to admit, I've sort of gone off the art of breakfast. Um, <laughs> the art. And uh, uh, I often uh, stagger through till about lunchtime where I get really, really hungry and cram down too big a lunch, but... I woke up at a reasonable hour this morning and uh, my better half was uh, was accompanying me for breakfast and because we uh, didn't want to go out anywhere and waste money again, I decided to cook her breakfast and uh, I cooked myself some breakfast too. I love bacon, Finey. I've always loved bacon. I loved it when I was a kid. I used to, it was the first thing I learned to cook was frying bacon. So I fried up some bacon. In fact, I fried up an enormous amount of bacon and I got some toast ready. And then I thought, you know what? You know what I'd really, really like eating with bacon? Tomato. It just goes well with it. And not grilled tomato. I like cool sliced tomatoes. So I mm. grabbed um, a few, about four or five tomatoes, sliced them up. And my breakfast was it was a simple, simple breakfast for a man of simple pleasures. A huge plate of bacon and a huge plate of sliced tomato, bit of salt and pepper on the tomato, bit of toast to go with the bacon. And the coolness and slightly zesty tang of the tomato was the perfect accompaniment to the meaty fattiness of the bacon. They go together like uh, salmon and um, those other things, capers, uh, I have decided. Bacon and tomato, two ingredients that were meant to be together in holy matrimony. Of course they were. You, you, with the toast, you were only a, a smidgen away from one of the great sandwiches of all time. Yes, yes. No, I'm a big fan of the BLT. There you go. So, you know, I agree wholeheartedly. And I love bacon in all its forms. In all fact, right, your final hack. In fact, just on bacon. I don't know if you've... This is a Canadian-type bacon thing, but my kids love bacon and maple syrup. Oh, yes, yes. I've heard this. All right, my final hack. Do you know what milestone Cameron Smith reached on the weekend when the Melbourne Storm annihilated the Broncos? Uh, I don't. I I couldn't believe it. In his career, he scored 45 tries. I mean, he sets up tries. He's not a try scorer. But you know he takes the conversion kick. Mm. He reached the milestone of 2,700 points. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Can you believe that? That's not bad. He is such a great player. Melbourne Storm are back on top of the NRL table. You're working it out there, 422 yeah. games. Uh, so that's about. No, right. no, I'm working out, well, how many kicks? It's two points of conversion, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so 1,350 kicks. It's about, okay. you know, it's an extra six or seven points a game. 
Yeah. But he's such a great player. He's such a great bloke. I was lucky to do two years of radio with Cam, just him coming into the studio. Greatest player, great bloke, and hairiest man I've ever met. Like Homer Simpson. Came, came, comes in unshaved, almost has a beard by the time he leaves. One of those guys that needs to, like Ashley Brown, needs to shave up to his neck or his whole head would be immersed in hair. Sorry, Brownie, just telling the truth. So I just wanted to say how brilliant and hairy Cameron Smith is and how brilliant Melbourne Stormer. All right, no, well done. Congratulations, Cameron Smith, a wonderful rugby league player and a wonderful ambassador for uh, Melbourne sport, let alone the Melbourne Storm. All right, there are there is life suitably hacked. Uh, I think we need to finish things off with a damn good rant. On Footyology, the rant off. All right, Fanny, I'm ready to launch. This is a football-flavoured rant. Uh, count me in. One, two, three, Rowan Connolly. I'm pissed off with being an Essendon supporter, Fanny. Now, I know exactly what you're going to say now. Try being a St Kilda supporter. Okay, so I have got to see a few flags at least in my lifetime. Five to be precise, if you count the one six months after I was born. I don't remember a lot about that one, mind you, though apparently I had Ken Fraser's number sewn on my red and black bib already. But gee, there's been a lot of heartache and frustration among those scattered moments of joy, not to mention these last 20 flagless years. Consider the fact I'm even doing this rant when my side is 5-2 with a game in hand and 6th on the ladder. That's pretty good compared to some of the dross the Bombers have served up at times over recent years, not to mention that um, little matter of some controversy a few years back. But I can't remember ever having taken less enjoyment out of my side being 5-2 before, mainly because I've had the ambulance on standby virtually every bloody week. Five wins, none of them by anything more than 15 points. Heart in your mouth stuff every time. It's no good at all being a Bomber fan with a dodgy ticker finally, let me tell you. How about today? Playing the winless bottom team in front all day and it's still a Harry Houdini effort to win it. Adelaide kicking 1-6 in the final quarter and nearly pinching it right at the death. How does a three-point win against the likely wooden spooner feel like you've got out of jail? Or a 14-point win against the North Melbourne side, which has now lost six games in a row? Or two more wins by under a kick against two teams in Sydney and Fremantle, which are 14th and 16th on the ladder. Is this side any good or not? It doesn't feel like it. But can you really win five games from seven, lose another on the siren, if you're not much chop? And why do I feel like I've lost even when they win? It's been going on my whole life, this funny. I mean, as a man in my mid-50s, I might cark it any day now. Is this all I'm going to see? I was 35 when they last held up the cup. But what about those four flags you remember, I hear you say? Well, 1984, I spent 90% of the grand final against Hawthorne, convinced we were going to lose. What about 1985, when they won by 78 points, then the third highest margin ever? Well, it was only five goals at three-quarter time, and I couldn't relax until about the 30-minute mark of the final term. Yes, I am one of those people that aren't just a glass-half-empty person, I'm a never-had-anything-in-the-glass person. That doesn't help. 1993, well, that was a flag out of the blue, wasn't it? The baby bombers were kids. They couldn't possibly win it. I'm not sure I believed it, even when Bomber Thompson was standing on the dais holding the couple aloft. And 2000, after 24 wins in 25 games, will you ask an Essendon fan who wasn't crapping their dacks that whole day that after doing everything right, they were going to stuff it up 
in the game that mattered most. That's how us Bombers roll, Finey. Too many one-point losses in unlosable preliminary finals, too many unthinkable controversies or ridiculous catalogues of injuries. We always expect the worst. You know, the last time I felt truly satisfied as an Essendon fan, it was that day they came from 69 points down against North Melbourne in round 16 of 2001. Ah, yes, a famous win. You know what happened immediately after that win? After barely losing a game for two years, we went 50-50 for the rest of that season, blew the grand final, and have never looked remotely a flag chance for 19 years since. That was my punishment for getting ahead of myself. But after nearly expiring again watching my team today, I'd like to humbly ask God why my penance has had to last for two decades. <laughs> I didn't know it was such a trial to barrack for a team like Essendon. But yeah, I guess it's, you know what? It's not easy barracking for any team if you love them, I guess. That is true. All right, I'll count you in. Three, two, one, rant. Whilst the rest of Australia gets back on its feet and seems to live life fairly normally, of course, in Melbourne, we have ground to almost an absolute standstill. I live in a fairly busy part of town. There's not much traffic. There's not much foot traffic. Everybody's inside. There's time to spare. And I'm almost in hibernation, but it's the stovetop that gives me my great solace, my great escape, my happy place. So I took on the challenge yesterday of making a dish I've always wanted to make, one of the great tests of cooking. A great test in it requires immaculate and very much accurate scoring and, uh, and sourcing of food. It's not easy. Preparation is at a paramount. The preparation key, then the actual cooking is a long, testy process till you finally get the meal to the table. You don't know whether it's worked. I'm talking about the classic of southern France, the Marseillaise dish of the poor fisherman, the bouillabaisse, the seafood stew of the great southern France. The fish that is made, that you make the soup out of, are hard to source. In France, they're called rascas, Lyon, here, gurnards and dragonfish. Not easy to get, more sourceable at a pet shop than at a fish shop. But I did my research, I went to South Melbourne Market, I bought the necessaries, all the aromatics, I went home, I turned the entire house into the, basically it smelt like a trawler for about four hours, and then finally, three hours after the promised dinner time of seven o'clock, I served the meal. The true bouillabaisse. The kids had already eaten a pizza, and tipped it out. It's too fishy. The wife had grown impatient and started nibbling at uh, an assortment of dried peas and dehydrated marigolds. She didn't touch it. And quite honestly, after you've been cooking at the bottom of a trawler for six hours, the last thing you want to eat is fish. So if anybody wants some bouillabaisse that took nine hours to prepare, $135 for four plates, of which none were eaten, you're going to have to swim down the bottom of my rubbish bin, but there it is. I'm pretty sure it was a good bouillabaisse, but nobody actually had the, well, patience or the long, or, or the ability, the, the um, strength to taste it. So, bouillabaisse, au revoir, mon ami. <laughs> 
Well, I don't blame him, Fighty. I actually would have loved to try it, but I'm not waiting around till 10 o'clock to eat dinner. Um, it was one of those things. Is it ready? Is it ready? Nah. Then the wife goes, I'm just ordering him a pizza. <laughs> God. Yeah, I reckon there weren't a few uh, cross words said. I'm not surprised. Okay, that wraps things up. Uh, we will be back again on Thursday when we will review one game and preview another uh, several. Um, just bear with us, uh, read the scheduling. I'm sure you're as confused as we are. Anyway, uh, I hope your team had a good win over the weekend. If not, better luck sometime over the next 20-odd days as we launch into this football marathon. Quick sign-off and uh, thank you for our sponsors, Finey. Booyah bees, forget it. Andrew's Hamburgers, get it. How much? Are, and I was only around the corner, I went to South Melbourne Market. Shouldn't have spent the 150 bucks or thereabouts on nothing and just gone and got some beautiful Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Stupid me. And you know what? Nothing is better than getting back to a new home built by Nick Spartels and West Point Properties. Even Justin Westoff would have had his Saturday night improved had he lived in a West Point property home. But he lives in South Australia. If you're in Victoria, ring up Nick Spartels and West Point. All right. Uh, thank you, sponsors. Uh, thank you, listeners. Thank you, linesmen. Thank you, ball boys. Uh, we'll see you on Thursday. <laughs>